I have seen an ad that said, work less, enjoy life more. And I looked at that and I thought, I could have written that when I was a teenager. Because one thing I hated were chores. You remember those? As a teenager, there were always chores for me to do. And I remember waking up on Saturdays especially, and I had my little list, sometimes not so little. And I thought, oh, I hate work. I was like the lazy kid who said, I always do my exercises. As soon as I get up in the morning, I go at it. Up, down, up, down, up, down. Then I tell myself, all right, now the other eyelid. (laughs) Up, down. The motto for some is, I love work. It fascinates me. I could sit and watch it for hours. I even heard about one mother who tried to hire her teenage son to do some work. And so she had a list, and he came because she was hiring him to do it. He was a little more mature, and he said, What do you want me to do today? She said, I want you to do the laundry. I want you to clean the house upstairs and downstairs, every bit of it. I want you to go to the grocery store and buy food. I want you to come home and cook dinner. And without batting an eye, he said, Then can I go to the ball? like Cinderella. Now, when we become older, work is different for us. In fact, it's part of our identity. And we, we, we derive satisfaction out of it, especially if we do something worthwhile in life. It's part of our identity because the first question people will ask you is, Hi, what's your name? And the second question is, What do you do for a living? It's part of who you are. 73% of American men and 71% of American women say even if they struck it rich, they wouldn't quit their jobs. They would continue to work, even if they won a lottery or something else. Now that's interesting because only 43% of Americans in another poll, only 43% say that they are satisfied with their jobs and that by the time the average American reaches age 40, he has gone through eight jobs, eight occupations. So I can only deduce from that that for some people it's all about activity rather than productivity. And I want to talk to you about both tonight. What you do and why you do it. What reason. Especially in a spiritual sense. For Paul the Apostle said, we are workers together with Him. Workers together with Him. And also, he wrote, we are God's fellow workers. In other words, you have a station in life. You have a post to man. You have some occupation, avocation that God has called you to do. You work for God. There's a higher reason we work or play, or hang out with unbelievers in any setting. I think Paul nailed it when he said that you might adorn the doctrine of God. I love that. In other words, by our lifestyles, our beautiful Christian lifestyles, adorning the doctrine of God, we're showing our faith to other people. The Wall Street Journal recently said that out of 1,200 business students in 10 different countries, 45% of them 
named a rewarding life outside of their work that was their goal. Something, not just making a living, but something else that made a life for them. And I want to to sort of elevate your sights tonight to see that that is serving the Lord. God is your employer. You work for God. Now tonight we're going to look at just three verses, verse 12, 13, and 14. And those three verses speak of, as I see it, three privileges of working for God. He's the best boss you could ever have. Three great privileges. Let's read it. Verse 12, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. The first privilege is the privilege of purpose. Jesus speaks about works. He came to do work, he did works, and now we get to do it. It's a partnership. And this tells us of our purpose in life. This is the privilege of purpose. The word that Jesus uses for works is a Greek word, ergon or ergon. We we get our word energy from that root. It simply means an activity a busyness, a place you spend your energy. It is a word in the Bible that often refers to God's work and sometimes also refers to man's work. In other words, our lives have a purpose. We have a commission to fulfill a divine purpose in life. Now, one of, one of people's greatest issues in life is per- what, what is the purpose of life? Why am I here? And so this settles for us the great purpose, the great question. What is the purpose of my life? And let me just say that to live without discovering the answer to this basic question is frustrating and disorienting. Can you imagine what it would be like if you took, say, an Amazonian tribesman who lived with the basic rudiments of life and uprooted him and put him right in the middle of of Times Square in Manhattan, New York City, without giving him any briefing, without teaching him any English, without giving him any uh, idea of the purpose of this structure called an American city, with all the billboards and sounds and lights, it would be cruel and it would be disorienting. And so it is also cruel to try to live your life and disorienting, try to live your life without knowing the purpose of being in this world. And then as a Christian... What is my purpose as a child of God? Thoreau wrote very insightfully, Most men lead lives of quiet desperation. A haunting truth. Most men lead lives of quiet desperation. And here's why. Because they don't know the purpose of their existence. They don't live with purpose. But when we come to know God, and we come to understand His plan... It puts a whole new spin on life, a whole new joy, a whole new kick, a whole new energy. And because we we suddenly realize God's purpose, God's plan includes me. I'm a part of it. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul speaks of this, alludes to the fact that God is my employer. 
He says, we are God's work of art created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Doing God's work is simply part of being God's kid. There's a natural progression. The first stage is simply salvation. We come to be born again. We believe in Him. We come to church. We read the Bible. We pray. We grow. But then, after a while, it's not enough, is it? It's not enough to just receive. After a while, coming in and just saying, okay, you got 30 minutes to bless me. Go ahead. We want more than that. We start actually believing what Jesus said. It's more blessed to give than to receive. So that takes us to the second stage, not just salvation, but service. We've watched God work in us, and that's been thrilling, but now... The whole idea that God would work through us, that I would become a tool, an instrument to touch other people in His name. Now that is purpose. And so life gets amped up to a whole new level. As James put it, be doers of the word, not just hearers only. One author described it this way, it's like a son who's being brought into the family business. Instead of racing fast cars, running around with girls, he finally buckles down and he says, Dad, I'm a part of this. It's my business too, and I'm going to work hard and undertake the burden of this work. That, says the author, is real maturity. That needs to happen to us. If if we're going to live with the satisfaction of my life has real meaning and purpose, We're going to have to go beyond the, I'm just saved, I'm going to heaven, I want to get blessed on the way, to the second stage of service, works for God. Lord, what do you want me to do? I have a book in my library that I bought solely based upon the title. It was one of the books that when you walk by it in the bookstore, you think, I have to own that book. The book is saying, hey, you, come here, buy me. The book is entitled, Why Churches Die. Why Churches Die. It was written by Hollis Green. And uh, there are several principles as to why churches die, he says. He says, number one, when converts don't become disciples. When converts don't become true followers of Christ. And number two, when disciples do not become apostles. They're learning, they're following, but they're really not doing anything of purpose for the kingdom. They don't become an instrument. Eventually, that person will shrivel up. And you get a lot of those people together and the church dies. So the first great privilege of being God's employee is the privilege of purpose. Second is the privilege of proportion. Now, I want you to read this carefully. Let it sink in. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. Now, I don't know if that did anything to you. But when I read it, every time I read it, it stops me dead in my tracks. And it causes me to ask, what on earth could Jesus possibly mean by that? I'm going to do greater works? See, the way I look at it, there are 40 recorded miracles 
in the Gospels that Jesus performed. Forty of them. Pretty astonishing miracles. Uh, Speaking to a storm, telling it to calm down, and it worked. Walking on a lake. Rising people from the dead. Curing terminal illnesses. Taking a guy's lunch and making it feed 5,000 men plus women and children. And... And that's only a sample of other works more in number than that. For John writes at the end of his gospel, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So what could he mean? Because I've got to tell you the truth, I've never calmed a single storm I've started a few. (laughs) I've never raised a person from the dead, though I'll admit I would love to have. I have prayed for certain people, and at times I've seen them get better. But I've also prayed for other people, and they got worse. In fact, I was like on a losing streak for a month where I prayed for people, and they always got sicker, and some even died, and I thought, don't even ask me to pray for you. Yet Jesus says greater works he will do. That's proportion. What does he mean? Let me give you a few options. Let's work our way to the answer. Some say that this refers to miraculous works performed by the apostles only. The greater works are the miracles that Jesus did, and they'll be performed by the apostles only. So that Jesus gave to these twelve, now eleven, because Judas leaves the room, special miracle-working ability. And it is true, if you look at the history of the early church recorded in the book of Acts, you see incredible miracles. You see Peter and John uh, healing the Lord's power, but their instrumentality, a man who's lame from birth. You see Paul performing what the Bible calls unusual miracles. However... If what Jesus is saying here means only the apostles perform miraculous powers, we have a whole host of problems. Problem number one, Jesus here doesn't seem to limit to the apostles, does he? Because he says, he who believes in me. That's not just apostles, that's anyone who believes in him. Problem number two In the book of Acts, it wasn't just the apostles that healed. It was non-apostolic people that did it, like Stephen, who was just a deacon in the church. But it says great signs and miracles were performed by him. Problem number three, even though the apostles did do miraculous works, would any of us dare say they exceeded those of Jesus? Uh Uh-uh. And problem number four, if this means only the disciples do miracles, what of all the other miraculous powers recorded in church history? What of the writings of Ignatius and Justin Martyr and Tertullian and Irenaeus who write about miracles done through the ages? So we can rule that out. It doesn't just mean apostles doing miraculous works. Option number two, it is miraculous works done by anyone who has enough faith. And those that interpret it this way will emphasize the word believe. He who believes. And they will say, the reason we don't see so many miraculous works is because we don't believe enough. 
We don't have enough faith. We need to speak in faith more. There's a whole theology built around that. In fact, the theology says you should always speak things in faith. Even if they're not happening, you just speak them by faith and have them happen. Never say anything negative. You should never say, I lost my job, even if you did. Because it's negative. It's not faith building. So live in denial. You should never say, I feel sick, even if you do, because it's negative. I heard about three guys who were driving in a car, and one was of this persuasion, and uh, he was the driver. And the driver said, hey, uh, how's your brother? Said to, to the guy sitting next to him. And the guy said, oh, he's really sick. Man, he's been sick all week. And the man rebuked him and said, never say that. You should just say, he thinks he's sick. It's a negative confession. So the guy said, okay, sorry, he thinks he's sick. They went down the road a little bit while longer, and he asked the guy sitting in the back seat, Hey, uh, how's your uh, uncle doing? And uh, he said, Oh, he thinks he's dead. <laughs> now, I want you to note something here. Look at the text. Jesus is making a declaration, not an offer. Jesus said, He will do these things. Not he might do. Not if he has an intensity of faith and sufficiency of faith, he might do it. It says he who believes in me, he will do it. It's a declaration. So it could be that Jesus is referring when he says to greater works something entirely different, something longer lasting like spiritual works. Not physical miracles. Not necessarily physical miracles. Now, we have to back up. We have to start with a clean slate. We have to realize that God doesn't see things as we see them, right? My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. They're higher than your ways. And God doesn't necessarily share our view of what great is or what success is or our values in our culture. So we would say, now that is great. God say, not all that great. And things that we might minimize, like spiritual things, God would say, that's greater. That's how God thinks. Example, Jesus sent his disciples out on a mission, gave them miraculous powers, and they came back stoked. That's a surf term for very excited. <laughs> because they said e even the demons were subject to their command. It, they came at Jesus. We saw it, man. We spoke things and the demons submitted to us. And Jesus says in Luke 10, I have given you authority to overcome all of the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Did you hear that? Jesus compares a physical miracle with a spiritual work and elevates one above the other as being more valuable. Jesus' chief work on earth was not to heal people. It was to save people. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. So what is the greatest work Jesus Christ ever did? Get sinful people to heaven. That's the greatest work. As first seen on the cross as he hung there and here was a, a thief sitting next to him who had simple faith and Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. 
That's miraculous. To get a person like that to heaven, he's still doing it. So when Jesus says greater works, he's not thinking greater in magnitude, greater in power, greater in intensity, but here it is, greater in extent, greater in extent. Think of what Jesus actually did when he was living in the flesh on earth. He never preached once outside of Israel. He never took the gospel to Rome. Uh, he never preached in Europe. But now think, now think of that band of 120, the 11 disciples, one who would fill in for Judas and some other believers in an upper room who were commissioned by Jesus, who took the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to Syria, to Asia Minor, to Greece, to Macedonia, to Ethiopia, and to Rome. Think of Peter. Yes, Peter. His first sermon ever. 5,000 people responded at the altar call. Magnificent. Experts tell us within a few months' time, there were 20,000 Christians in Jerusalem after the ascension. More in a few months saved than all of Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry. It's estimated that within the first 300 years of history after the ascension, Christianity closed almost all of the heathen temples in the Roman Empire. The converts were upwards in the millions, Gentiles as well as Jews saved. So the work is quantitatively greater than what Jesus did upon the earth. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is living in all of us now. And I want you to notice that the promise is tied to Jesus leaving and going back to the Father. He says, greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. What does that mean? Well, turn over a page. And go to chapter 16. Verse 5. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Jesus had to leave because in leaving, He sent the Holy Spirit to dwell inside all of believers so that we could continue to do the greater work throughout the centuries. Greater works. That is why Acts chapter 1, verse 1 begins, The former treatise that I wrote to you, all Theophilus, listen, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach inferring that what I'm about to write is what Jesus is continuing to do through the instrumentality of these people that he commissioned. That's what it means. You think of it. I, I'm amazed, I'm humbled, I'm thankful that we can use right now radio waves and thousands of people around America are listening to this message. Or that you can print books or tracts or send tapes out or CDs of messages. It's amazing. And I think of people like Dr. Billy Graham, who has preached the gospel to more people than any other single human being in history. And he is humbled by that. I was in Puerto Rico with him some years ago when he had a crusade that was piped up by satellite around the world 
And 185 countries at one time were watching this crusade. It was translated into 116 different languages. And it was attended each night by 10 million people. As people gathered and watched it in fields, watching big screens and on televisions around the globe. And now I'm looking at a group of people who are fulfilling this by your lives, where you work with your families in this town. Greater works are being done. You're a part of the Great Commission. In other words, it's your turn. It's your turn. Now look at verse 13 and 14 as we bring this to a wrap-up. There's the privilege of purpose. That's the work of God. There's the privilege of proportion. That's the greater works. There's another. It is the privilege of prayer. And this answers the question, how am I going to get the job done? That's a huge task. Not only do we have a task, not only is it a huge task, we have all the resources we need to pull it off. And yet, with all of our technology and all of our strategy, we often forget this. This is where it begins. This is what fuels it all the way through. Jesus says, And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Boy, this is a pivotal truth. It's pivotal because, you know, these disciples are they are a little bit bent, torqued, sad, distraught, discouraged. Jesus is about to leave them, but he assures them that he has provided all of the resources they need to do the work, the greater work, even without his physical presence. And that's the context of this, by the way. These verses have been grossly misunderstood over the years and taken out of context. Um, Some people think this is sort of a magical formula. You just tack on in Jesus' name and it's sort of like abracadabra. It works. Some people have even said, well, I've prayed and God didn't answer me. I tell them, oh, yes, He did. He said no. (laughs) You see, a lot of folks read something into this promise that really isn't there. It's part of a whole package. This isn't a blanket promise. You can just ask God for whatever you feel like or that you tack on the in Jesus' name sort of the saying, over and out, I'm done now with the prayer. Something more than that. These are conditions that have to be met. In other words, when I pray, I pray in the name of Jesus for the purpose of God being glorified. It's basically the same thing John, who wrote this book, wrote in his little letter, 1 John, in chapter 5. He said, This is the confidence that we have in approaching God. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if He hears us, we know that we have what we have asked of Him. You may want to try this next time you pray. See if you can add this next time you pray. When you pray... After you're done praying, say, Lord, I pray this because I know this is what Jesus would want and I know it will glorify you. It's going to sift out a lot of requests. And you're going to start hearing yes a lot more. 
Now it says, in my name. What does that mean? In ancient Judaism, to approach a person in another person's name meant you're taking with you that person's character, his reputation. So today, if a friend says, well, go ahead, you can use my name when you go to that place. You want to go to the restaurant? Use my name. You want to buy something there? Use my name. It's a great privilege, but it's a great responsibility. If you were to try to go visit my mother in Southern California, who's listening right now, and you were to just say, listen, I'm in the California area, you're going to knock on her door and just say, hi, I'd like to just spend the night. Well, she doesn't know who you are. She's not going to let you in. But if you said, I come in Skip's name. He sent me. He said, if you're ever in the area, stop by mom's house. She'd love to put you up. Of course, I would tell her in advance that I was going to do that. But it'd make a whole difference. And so we pray in Jesus' name to the Father. We come on His character, His reputation. He's the sinless one. We don't come on our name. Lord, I come to you in my name. Shaky ground. Oh, by the way, don't try to come in my name. Lord, I come to you in Skip's name. Unless you want to give heaven a good laugh. But you know what? The more you get to know God, the more you get to know God, you get to know what He wants. You understand who He is and you know how to pray. And the more you get to know Him and know how to pray, you're going to hear yes a whole lot more. Jesus said in John chapter 15, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask whatever you desire and it will be given to you. Why? Because you're in sync with what that person wants. You know what they want. You pray according to his will. Years ago when Nathan was much younger, it was 9 o'clock, I was tucking him in bed, and I said to him as I was tucking him in bed, Nathan, do you know what I want you to do right now? And he said, you want me to brush my teeth right now. Now, I didn't have to tell him. He knew it because he had heard me so often. And when we read God's book, we understand the mind of God. We start praying according to the will of God. By the way, when was the last time you prayed for greater works to be done in your life? It's a promise. When was the last time you said, Lord, I want to find out what you're up to in this world and I want to be a part of it. It's my work too. Remember, James spoke of the person and she said, you have not because you ask not. And you know, some Christians never get around to actually asking God what he wants them to do and thus live unproductive lives. Now, before we close, um, there is a question I want to address. You may be asking it in your mind. Because you hear this, God's work He's called us to do, and it's a great work, and it's His great commission. But, because it is so great, you might think, hey, the task is too big. The work is too hard. The people are too many. Let me answer that by saying, number one, you're not the manufacturer, you're the distributor. It's not your work. You don't have to produce anything. You just have to give it away, what you got. That's all. 
You're the instrument. God does the work through you. Remember, Jesus said, because I'm going to my Father. In other words, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. You're covered. You're a distributor, not a manufacturer. Second, let me say that it's the enormity of the work that causes us to go on, that keeps us going. It is never the smallness of a task that keeps people going. It's the enormity of a task. Jesus said, go into all the world. That's a pretty enormous task. But that's why it's called the Great Commission. Not the mediocre commission. Not the small commission, but the Great Commission. And did you know that communists in their, in their heyday years ago used to recruit people by telling them this is the toughest job you'll ever do. It may require you lay down your life. And giving them that kind of a challenge, they found that people would rise to meet the task. It's the enormity of the task, not the manageability or the smallness of the task that keeps us going. In fact, when the task becomes too small, we shrivel up. And I meet Christians all the time. Their, their world is reduced to I, me, and mine. They shrivel up. You know, the world's smallest package is you wrapped up in yourself. It's an enormous task. We rise to the challenge. Third and finally, let me just say that Great works are done by a combination of smaller parts. Great works are done by a combination of smaller parts. You can't do it all. You look at the world and the needs and the, the possibility. You can't do it all. You're not called to do it all. You're called just to do your little part, to be faithful to it. And then to look at your part as great. This is a great commission. This is something God gave me. It's a great task. And I'm going to see it as such. I heard of a man who went to a construction site one day and he asked the workmen, what are you doing? There were three of them. And one worker said, I'm chipping stone, can't you see? He asked the second construction worker, what are you doing? He said, I'm making a wall. He asked the third construction worker, what are you doing? He said, I'm building a cathedral. They were all doing the same thing. Perspective changes everything. This is a great work. And your work is part of the greater works that we're called to do. I read something this week by Linda Clare. She's from Eugene, Oregon. She spends long hours as a child care provider. One day she was just sort of thinking about her job as a child care provider working in a little toddler's home where people would drop off their kids. And she prayed, she goes, Lord, surely you, you want more of my life than just being a babysitter. There's got to be some great work you've called me to. That afternoon, a father came by to pick up his daughter, toddler. And he said, you know, you have taught my daughter how to pray, haven't you? Because now, every day, Casey comes home and she wants to say grace. And we're not used to doing that in our house. And I got to thinking and seeing her wanting to pray, I told my wife, I think we need to start attending church. And I just want to thank you. Suddenly it all became clear. This is a great work. This is a great and holy purpose. And so now when people ask, what do you do for a living? She smiles and answers, I'm just a babysitter for Jesus. 
your work. You have an occupation. You have a job. You're making a living. But in that, you should be making a life. Building a life. Building something that will last. And take pleasure. This is a great work. I want to use it for God's glory. Pray for it and watch it happen. You know, one of my favorite movies, you've heard me talk about this before, is Chariots of Fire. It's about a man who eventually became a missionary. He's from Scotland. Eric Little was his name. But he was an Olympic athlete. He was a runner. And he loved to run. And his sister Jenny would always tell him, God's called you to the mission field. You should be thinking about the mission field, not just running. And at one very poignant part of the movie, when they were having a conversation in the front of a church... Eric turned to Jenny, who said, you should go to the mission field. And he said, Jenny, I know that God made me for a purpose. But Jenny, I also know that God made me fast. And when I run, I feel His pleasure. I've always liked that. When I run, I feel God's pleasure. And you could say that with babysitting. When I babysit, I feel His pleasure. When I cook those meals... When I sit in the office, when I build with stone the wall, the cathedral, I feel his pleasure. I heard that phrase again this week. I was talking to a man in the community that I know who's coaching football at a local high school. And he said, you know, when I coach those kids and make them do push-ups, make them run the field and teach them football, I feel God's pleasure because it's opening a door into their lives that could be a great door. That's the way to look at it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You've called us to a great task. It settles the issue of what our purpose is in life. What a privilege to know we have a purpose. And it's part of Your grand scheme to reach a world. What a privilege, Lord. Thank You that we can be involved in Your work. Lord, it's humbling. It's staggering to think that Jesus called it a greater work because it's greater in extent. Day after day, as the Holy Spirit indwells millions of believers around the world, your kingdom can be spread and enlarged, become greater. Lord, then we have the ability to come before you and pray and get resources by your strengthening spirit that we we couldn't have on our own. And I think of the song... Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Lord, we pray that our lives would be filled with great works. Not that we have to quit what we're doing, but in the midst of what we're doing, to feel your pleasure. Lord, I would find... Lord, I would find...